News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it is a big day in Ottawa. We are expecting the throne speech as well as something that doesn't happen very often, but a special national address from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. To find out more about the significance of this and what's going on, we're joined now by Global News Chief Political Correspondent David Aiken. Good morning, David. Morning, Simi. How's it going? It is, well, stormy today, but let's find out how it's going in Ottawa. Uh, What should we be looking for in this throne speech today? Beautiful sunny weather in Ottawa, I should point out. Lucky but you. Um, w- we would like to see more details, I suppose. That's what Canadians want to know, more details about the government's plans, uh, f- uh, fiscally on the health crisis, you name it. But throne speeches tend to be a little shorter on details, a little longer on, on vision. It's going to be a long throne speech. It's going to be take about an hour to read. Of course, it'll be read by the Governor General, Julie Payette. And I think what you'll see is the government lay out sort of three broad themes. The first and foremost is the continuing health crisis. And the government will sketch out uh, its thoughts about vaccine development, uh, health research, uh, and more broadly, how it's going to support provinces and local health authorities, not only with the COVID pandemic, but also with uh, things like wait times and so on. That's something that the premiers have really been pressing the PM about. So look for health to be a big theme in the throne speech. And then there's the economic recovery, keeping it going, keeping it going safely, not only supporting businesses, but also individual Canadians. Some of you probably know the CERB ends this week. Mm-hmm. Four million Canadians have been relying on the Canada Emergency Response Benefit. It's all over as of this weekend. Most of those people, if they still need some help, will transition to a new simplified employment insurance program. That can be done by regulation, but there's about a million Canadians who who won't qualify for EI, the the self-employed, for example. And the government is prepared to help those folks out with some new benefit programs, but legislation is going to be required. So look for some discussion about timing on that. That's That, I think, is a very hot, it's the highest priority, I think, for the government right now. And finally, you will hear some talk about a quote-unquote green recovery, about how the federal government can continue working towards its path, meeting uh, commitments to reduce greenhouse gases. This is the, the whole build back better uh, idea you may have heard about. I think those will be your three broad themes for the day. Interesting. Okay. And of course, this comes after some pretty frank talk from Canada's top public health official yesterday. That was Dr. Teresa Tam, who um, warned us that the country is at a crossroads. Can you walk us through what she had to say? Yeah. And crossroads is the is the phrase she used and it really got a lot of people's attention. Um, she had lots of, we had some new models and we are in a second wave. Uh, we have seen the number of new cases in this country nearly double, a number of daily new cases nearly double from August level. So we're on to a second wave. And the government does not want to repeat the second waves, for example, that countries like Spain had, where the second wave was bigger than the first wave. We don't want that. And that's why Dr. Tam was saying, we're at a crossroads. Which way do we want to go? I want to try and flatten it. Now, this wave is a little different because it's more young people. And this is across the country. Younger people are getting this. They tend to recover quickly or they, they don't suffer as much. And so we haven't seen mortality rates rise or hospitalization rates rise. But the fear is, of course, young people uh, pass it on to teachers, to parents, to grandparents, and then we're back into a world of hurt. And that would force some uh, local health authorities to get into more lockdowns. And now we've seen in B.C., Dr. Henry has sort of ratcheted back some of the 
restrictions that had been lifted earlier in the in the year because of concerns about new caseloads. So that is top of mind for the federal government, top of mind for health authorities at the federal level and at the provincial level. Right. Now, obviously, the prime minister is taking this warning pretty seriously, too, that he's giving this rare primetime televised address this Mm -hmm. evening. Not primetime for us here on the West Coast, though. Uh, But why is this so rare? What is the significance of this? Yeah, and as it turns out, it's really only, only minority governments who want to give these these TV addresses. The last one was Stephen Harper when his minority government was about to be taken out of office by uh, a coalition led by Stéphane Dion. Of course, that didn't happen. Um, it's a different kind of address tonight, but a matter that the government believes is of of national importance, and that's why he's asked uh, the networks for this 30 minutes of, of TV time. Um, he really wants to use it, first of all, to stress the urgency of dealing with this second wave. He really wants to make sure everybody understands how important it is that we pay attention to health authorities as they help us get through this second wave. And then he'll also use it to sort of talk a little bit about the broad themes in the throne speech. Politically, that puts his face on some of those ideas rather than relying on the governor general, because she's the one that would read the throne speech. In this way, we'll hear from the prime minister. Uh, I mentioned it's going to be 30 minutes starting at 3.30 at Pacific time, 6.30 Eastern. Uh, the last 15 minutes of that, of that chunk will be for the opposition to respond. So they'll get a chance to. Jugmeet Singh, though, is, about, is the only opposition leader who's not in sickbay. Because, of course, Aaron O'Toole, right. uh, the conservative leader, and Yves-Francois Blanchet, they've got COVID. They're isolated. They won't be in the House. And they sort of indicated they don't want to respond via video link. So we're not sure who's going to speak hmm. on behalf of the opposition. Uh, we'll find out. It's, it's, it's a very strange time uh, for many, many reasons, and that's just one of them. Sure sounds like it. David, thank you. Thanks, Simi. Cheers. This is Mornings with Simi. Economic numbers for September are going to be very closely watched after we had a a fairly steady recovery for June, July, and August. Unfortunately, what we're seeing is job postings flatlining a bit for the third week of September. That according to data from Indeed.ca. Now, Brendan Bernard is an economist at the Indeed Hiring Lab and joins us this morning with some analysis on that. Brendan, thanks for being back with us. Thanks for having me. So how are we looking for jobs right now? Uh, So in terms of job posting numbers, we've seen gradual recovery uh, throughout the summer and things are getting closer to normal levels, but overall still down uh, 20% compared to last year's 21% actually. Um, And and so uh, the the situation for job seekers is definitely not a normal market, even though there has been some improvement in recent months. Okay, so are there industries where it is back to normal? Yeah, there are a few. Uh, so no surprise, healthcare uh, demand is pretty strong. Uh, things fell a little bit uh, early on in the crisis, but right now postings are running quite close to their uh, last year's trend. We also see uh, some areas of strength in uh, places like construction, uh, loading and stocking, so uh, warehousing jobs, um, also also showing a fairly strong demand. I think the uh, loading and stocking uh, that, that, that sort of reflects this shift that we've had in, in our economy uh, with, uh, with online retail just really uh, growing in size and, and retailers kind of shifting uh, their demand to back of the house instead of the front of the house. But when you look overall, those, those I'd say are the exceptions. Uh, mo- most sectors are showing recovery, but still uh, way down from uh, previous trends. Yeah, so what are the hardest hit ones right now? 
Hardest hit. So uh, the pandemic exposed sectors are, are still uh, really struggling. Uh, aviation um, way down still. Uh, hospitality and tourism, food prep and service. Uh, these are areas of the economy where just things haven't returned back to normal. And in fact, uh, there are some red flags headed, heading into uh, the colder weather. And, and we've seen a uh, increase in uh, COVID cases in recent weeks. And so this, this, this could easily have, a, have an impact on people's willingness to go out and that, and that spills over to the job market. And, uh, and, and so that ongoing weakness we, we've seen could actually uh, deteriorate a bit uh, in, in the coming weeks. Like even more so. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, we, we, we saw this summer of recovery in, in the restaurant sector where things definitely weren't yeah. getting back to normal, but, but patios uh, were, were open and, and we did see uh, uh, reservations uh, at, at, at restaurants um, start to rise, but they, they never really got, got anywhere near back to previous levels. And, uh, and there's now some concern over, uh, over, uh, over where, uh, where they go uh, in, in the months ahead. Okay, so then if there were some areas that you looked at where you thought, okay, things are kind of heading in the right direction, kind of getting there, what would those be? Um, I, th- I think transport. there's certain areas of transportation, so driving jobs, um, uh, areas in trucking. I think in general, a, a lot of the economy is moving in the right direction. You can point to areas in tech um, uh, it, uh, and um and, and, and you know, I, I think uh, in general, uh, there's more opportunities out there uh, than there were back in June, or especially May and April. Uh, just, just not, just not a real uh, uh, strong job market like like Canada right. was experiencing uh, heading into this crisis. Now, were we expecting a bit of that in September, though, Brendan? Because we kind of knew that, you know, with the elimination of some of the job support programs and people kind of getting more serious about going back to work if they had been off for a couple months, that we thought the numbers might be a little bit like this? Um, well, I, I, I think in general, every month we get we move away from the initial shutdown of the economy uh, is more month for business to return and uh, people to get back to work. I think, though, by September, we're getting to the point where chances are most businesses that uh, shut down and we're going to reopen probably already have, maybe not running at full capacity, but uh, definitely fewer businesses just totally shut down but waiting to restart again. And so that just means fewer quick wins for the economy. And, uh, and, and so we've seen over the past few months a gradual easing in the pace of job growth. And I think, I think we're probably uh, going to see a continuation of that in September. All right. Is there any, like for retail now, are they looking ahead and saying, okay, well, maybe Christmas will bring us, you know, the holiday season will help us out? Yeah. And so, and so when, when I, when I uh, track uh, these job postings, I, I tend to try and incorporate uh, th- those seasonal patterns uh, into these trends. So you can see an area like retail where uh, it, uh, it, we can, over a over, over recent, few recent weeks, uh, po- postings might be up, but compared to where they were last year and the ramp up that we might see at the start of Q4 uh, uh, in, in, in typical years, right. th- th- things might, might, be, might be a bit weak. And, and that's something to keep in mind for the uh, labor force survey numbers in general. The num- all the numbers that you hear are seasonally adjusted, which means StatCan has this complicated pro- yet important process of detrending the numbers for based on what we know about how people 
and the labor market operates throughout the year. So people take summer vacations in July and August. Yeah. That's incorporated in the numbers, and they're adjusted for that. And and we'll, and the, the reverse is true uh, when people return to school in, in September. All right, Brendan, thank you so much for the update. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Yeah, for the first couple of months of the pandemic, as you remember, there was no sports, nothing. Everything got put on hold or was cancelled. But then slowly over the summer, we started to see the return of just about everything. But there have been many changes to how those events are held because of COVID-19. And one thing that you may not have noticed is the style of a whistle that referees are using. Yes, the whistle. Now, Ron Foxcroft is from Hamilton, Ontario, and years ago, he created something called the Fox 40. It is the most popular whistle that is used in sports. But recently, he had to adapt again. So now he is selling an electronic whistle. Now, the electronic whistle has been a hit. The company has received something like 50,000 orders so far, including orders from the NFL and the NBA. Now, Ron's a fascinating guy. He spoke to our Nikki Reitmeyer about his business. The conversation did start a little bit off topic, though. Ron told Nikki about the time that he met the Queen of England. Well, I'm the honorary colonel of the Argyle Highlander Regiment. And do you remember when Nathan Cirillo, Corporal Cirillo, got assassinated guarding the war memorial in well i'm the colonel in charge of his family and mm. basically in charge of putting on the largest military funeral in the history of canada my boss the colonel in chief of that regiment the argyles is the queen so after this large funeral um she emailed me and said, check your calendar. I want to express condolences to the regiment and the family and come on over to my apartment in Buckingham Palace, which I did. And um, after the formal part, she said, would you like to see my garden? And I said, yeah. And she said, you know, Colonel, did you bring those Canada geese to poop on my lawn? (laughs) And I gave her a Fox 40 whistle. And um, she said this, she put it in her mouth because it works. It scares Canada geese, it scares bears and coyotes. And she put it in her mouth and said, this is better than the shotgun. <laughs> so that's the queen. That's uh, that's my story of the queen. Jeez, Ron, you are seriously one interesting guy, you know, on top of that part of your life that you just shared with us. You're also the inventor of the whistle, most commonly used now in sports all around the world, the Fox 40. And all of this came about how? Because you saw a problem with the traditional style of whistle? I saw a big problem with the existing whistle. And and, uh, I'm a basketball referee. And it happened while I was refereeing the Olympic gold medal basketball game in Montreal. Adrian Dantley, who went on to a great career in the NBA took an elbow in the nose, broke his nose, blood all over the place. I blew the whistle with the little P and it got stuck. Well, you're not supposed to mess up the Olympic gold medal basketball game. So that was the first thought. The second thought, everywhere I signed that night to be the first ever Canadian to referee in Division I basketball in the NCAA. Everywhere I went in a big arena, um, Duke, North Carolina, UCLA, you blow the whistle with the P, it would get stuck. 
Finally, in Brazil, I worked the pre-Olympics. And at a critical point in the game, I blew my whistle with the little P, and it got stuck. And there's a fundamental difference between a disappointed crowd at the Olympics in Montreal and Brazil. It's very simple. They shoot referees in Brazil. So I came home, and I said, I'm going to fix this problem. I had no money. And I borrowed $150,000. I hired an engineer, a scientist, a PhD in sound, and a music teacher, all Canadians. And three and a half years later, after $150,000 debt, I had two prototypes, the Fox 40 and $75,000 a whistle. I went to the Pan American Games, put them under my pillow in Indianapolis in 1987, and at 2 o'clock in the morning in this dormitory, there's all these referees living. I went up to the top floor, blew my whistle, and all the referees came running. And it was so loud. It was penetrating, 125 decibels. And they said, can we buy it? And I said, nope, they're on back order. <laughs> and we sold that week 20,000 Fox 40 whistles at $6 US, had my $150,000 back, had to figure out how to make it. We did. And then since then, that was 33 years ago, it's exploded. 12 models, 100 and, uh, well, 15,000 whistles a day in 140 countries. Search, rescue, safety, every league on the planet, and lifeguards. It's, it's just been a great journey. Geez, what a great story. And you've created something new yet again, Ron, because of the pandemic. You've had to shift to now selling the suddenly very popular electronic whistle. When the pandemic hit, our sales of 200 products in March dropped 85%. Wow. And now we have a real entrepreneurial story because we have to turn on a dime, we have to be flexible, we have to be nimble, and we have to be innovative. Our team, and I hire people smarter than me, said we've got to maneuver and we've got to do it quickly. So what we did is we took our electronic whistle, which wasn't intended for team sports, and we said, you know, we have to adopt our electronic whistle for team sport. Well, pretty soon, Every league that was restarting started to connect with us, and now it's mandatory in the NCAA, it's optional in the NFL, it's used, uh, volleyball started in the United States, soccer started, and it's we, we just can't make them fast enough. And already we've designed a new and improved electronic Fox 40 whistle, which will be louder, rechargeable like your phone, and water resistant. So we've got that on the uh, R&D board, and it'll be launched in January. Uh, designed in Canada, and made in Canada, and packaged in Canada. That is so cool. That's our Nikki Reitmeyer talking to Ron Foxcroft, who's making a mint off the electronic whistle for sports. This is Mornings with Simi. 
So we're talking a lot today about what's going on in Ottawa. You've got the throne speech. You've got a, a pretty rare uh, speech from the prime minister to the Canadian public. That'll be live at 3.30 this afternoon. You'll hear it on the Linda Steele Show. But also, the Supreme Court is going to be hearing provincial challenges to the federal carbon tax. So we wanted to hear more about this particular case. So Environmental Defense is an advocacy group that supports a federal price on carbon emissions. They are one of the groups participating in the hearings. Sarah Buchanan is their Clean Economy Program Manager, and she joins us now. Sarah, thank you for being here. No problem, Sammy. Thanks for having me. So how, tell me about this particular court case. How many provinces, how significant is this? Right. So uh, there's a few provinces in the mix today. Um, So, you know, officially we've got uh, Ontario and Saskatchewan and Alberta, uh, who've all challenged uh, the federal government's price on carbon. And they're saying that uh, that it, it's against uh, the Constitution for uh, the federal government to be regulating and, and pricing greenhouse gas emissions in these provinces. And then we've got the federal government saying uh, that it, it, it's actually within their constitutional powers because uh, climate change is such a global emergency it's one uh, where greenhouse gas emissions, frankly, don't respect borders. They're not going to stop. Uh, if they're produced in Ontario, they're going to move into Quebec. Um, and if one province doesn't do their share, those greenhouse gas emissions end up hurting everybody. So the federal government needs the power to make sure that provinces meet certain just basic minimum standards um, for taking action on climate change. Now, I know one of the arguments that the provinces are using is that this isn't federal jurisdiction, right? Because there's nothing technically about the environment in the Constitution. Do you think that's going to be part of the discussion? That's going to be a huge part of the discussion. And it already has been uh, when this went to court in, in Ontario and Saskatchewan and Alberta already. So you're right. The environment isn't really laid out clearly in the Constitution who has jurisdiction over it. Uh, and, you know, frankly, when we look at climate change, it's a problem where everybody needs to be taking action. Provinces, um, federal government, cities. Um, so I, I don't think it personally should uh, be left up to one government to take action on climate change. I know that BC is often held up as an example here because we've had, a, a, you know, a carbon tax for more than 10 years now, but emissions in BC are still continuing to rise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we definitely see that a carbon tax isn't isn't a silver bullet solution. It's one tool in the toolbox. Um, it's something that has made a measurable measurable reduction in many places, including BC. Um, it doesn't mean that you know with rising population and, and emissions uh, coming from other sectors that emissions can't overall rise if you have a price on carbon in place. But what it does mean is often they don't rise as much. Or in the case of, you know, for example, um, uh, other provinces like Ontario or Quebec, um, you may see those emissions actually decline. So it's, it's, as I said, one tool in the toolbox, but it's a really big toolbox. And our governments need a lot of different tools in order to reduce greenhouse gas emissions at the scale that we need to see to actually fight climate change. So is it safe to say that the argument today is about whether or not the federal government can even use the toolbox? Well, the argument today is is about that one specific tool in the toolbox. Um, there, it, it is a little bit of a broader um, discussion about when it comes down to this emergency situation we're in with climate change, how much power does the federal government have? Um, but there has been, you know, one of the things that was actually in their favor in the Ontario case, which the federal government did won, uh, did win, they ruled it was constitutional for them to be pricing carbon in Ontario, 
So one of the things working in their favor was that they did fairly narrowly define their argument as being about whether they uh, whether they had the constitutional right, right to regulate and price greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so it, it, it wasn't an extremely broad uh, power to um, you know, make all industries change everything they're doing um, to reduce uh, all emissions. Well, thank you for explaining it to us. Yeah, no problem. Have a great day. You too. That's Sarah Buchanan, the Clean Economy Program Manager at Environmental Defense. They are an advocacy group that is also involved in these arguments today at the Supreme Court about the federal carbon tax. We'll let you know how that goes. This is Mornings with Simi. As we've been telling you all morning, busy day out of Ottawa today. We're looking ahead to the throne speech, which is coming in about four hours time or so. Uh, That's going to give us a better sense of the direction that the federal government wants to go in with the pandemic recovery effort. So what might be in there? Well, Daryl Bricker is the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, and he has put out a piece where he thinks what might be in that throne speech. And he joins us now to talk about that. Good morning, Daryl. Good morning. So tell me your thoughts on this. What do you think is coming? Oh, it's, uh, it's what a difference a month makes. I mean, a month ago, what we were hearing about was building back better and a uh, you know big green recovery and once in generation opportunities. And now we're uh, in in the fight of our lives with the COVID crisis, and we've, we're not talking about the future as much as we're talking about right now. So uh, I think that a lot of the ambitious aspects to what they were talking about uh, as they saw this recovery as an opportunity have been toned down and they're trying they're going to move to something that's more practical about helping us fight the 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 pandemic from a health perspective and also trying to get people back to work so you think the rising case numbers have made them kind of temper what their plans were well i think that uh, um, it's likely that uh, the rising case numbers but the other numbers that they were looking at was probably their own polling numbers and seeing that there really wasn't an appetite among the public for talking about what's going to be happening in the next generation or big recoveries, people are literally focused on what's going to be happening on Thursday. So they wanted a government to be engaged in that. And talking about those other things seemed, uh, I don't want to be too harsh, but a bit cavalier. And, and like they didn't understand what was actually happening in the day-to-day lives of, of people who are really, really struggling with this pandemic. So they've reoriented themselves to, to be, I think, more short-term. At least that's the, my expectation based on what's been coming out and really focused on those two, those two prongs, which are the healthcare part of this and right. the getting people back to work part of it. I mean, because clearly looking all over the world, it's pretty clear that there is no country where they're saying, hey, we're done, we're out of it, we're moving forward, the future is bright. No, everybody's uh, pretty much, to use a good Canadian analogy, analogy, skating on thin ice, regardless of where you are. Some have plunged through. I mean, if you see me... Uh, the information coming out of uh, the U.K., and I was on the phone this morning with my colleagues in the U.K. I mean, it's a fairly desperate situation. Similar in places like France, Spain, uh, other European countries, Latin America. There are still parts of Latin America that are locked down. I mean, if you go to uh, uh, Victoria in, uh, in, uh, in Australia, they you know, even have a curfew on where they're not allowed uh, outside after 8 o'clock at night. Yeah. So around the world... There's a real, um, people are really on thin ice. So in Canada, we're not building back better. We're, we're struggling to get through this to the point where we may be able to build back better. So what was being um, uh, suggested uh, in some of the previous rhetoric has obviously been toned down. Expectations have been toned down. 
And you can see that uh, given that the Prime Minister is going to be going on television tonight to talk about uh, the emergency aspects of this, they've now seized themselves with the fact that, you know, we're not in that position where we're going to be talking about the longer term. It's about what we're going to do today. Do you think it's also become clear, Daryl, that we have a a long recovery here simply because also you you just look at what happened in September. Nobody, the recovery hasn't happened yet. And now they're going to start withdrawing those, well, some of those anyway, financial support. So we could see actually a worsening economically. Exactly. And, and when you talk to the public about what the effect of COVID is, yes, they acknowledge the healthcare effect, but they don't see it as a huge threat to them personally. Where they really see the threat is the economic effects that come from the fact that we don't have the healthcare aspects of this under control. And by the healthcare aspects, they're focused on a really specific number, and that's the number of cases per day and whether or not they're rising or falling. Now, people look at that now almost like a weather forecast, and they plan their day based on it. Can I send my kid to school? Can I go right. back to the office? Should I take the risk of making a purchase? Are things going are, are they getting better or worse? So we're in that kind of really immediate, you know, just looking a couple of inches in front of our, our noses in, in terms of planning the future. We're, we're in that very immediate emergency way of thinking and really have not come out of it since March or April when this first started. So do you think we're going to hear patients today? Uh, I think probably we're going to be hearing that. I think that uh, your people are, are going to be reminded by the Prime Minister of all the things that they've done, and they've done a considerable amount to help Canadians and businesses and most aspects of Canadian life through doing an enormous amount of spending over the space of the last several months, and they've acted quickly, and they're going to remind people that, you know, that has created benefits. They're also going to, I would expect, talk to them about the challenge that we face in the short term and that they would like to get to this new plan that they have, but we've got some battles that we have to fight and win first. All right, we'll see what happens. Daryl, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. It's Daryl Bricker, the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. He's written a piece on what he thinks, what he's hearing and what he's feeling that throne speech is going to contain this morning. A very different throne speech than what we might have heard if it had been written, say, three weeks ago or four weeks ago, that the priorities of the government shifting now, given everything they see happening across the country. And of course, we'll have that throne speech for you this morning. And as well, the Prime Minister's address to the nation. He's asked for time to do this across platforms. So that will be live for you coming up this afternoon at 3.30 on the Linda Steele Show. You will hear it here. This is Mornings with Simi. I mean, snap elections don't always work out the way the incumbent hopes they will. In fact, just getting reelected has been a pretty tough challenge for NDP premiers in this province. It's actually really only happened once. Dave Barrett tried it, didn't work after he was in power for three years. Glenn Clark uh, did manage to get reelected in 1996, but boy, did that ever, that didn't go the way I'm sure he planned that to go because he lost the popular vote, squeaked out a win though in terms of seats, and that really led to a tumultuous three or four years uh, in BC politics until the NDP was just about wiped out in the next election. So with all that mounting, now you've got another NDP premier who is trying for a majority here. We wanted to kind of look back at the history and talk about that a bit more. Joining us now is Kara Camcastle, who's a professor of political science at Simon Fraser University. Kara, thank you very much for being here. Good morning, Simi. I'm surprised that they didn't take a good look at history and go, geez, I don't know if we should try this. Oh, that's exactly right. Uh, Actually, there's only been one... uh, (laughs) 
only one NDP government that was re-elected. Uh, that was, as you say, um, uh, when that case of Harcourt, and uh, but actually was with a different leader. Because Harcourt resigning right. and Clark becoming leader, and it, and they had uh, they came second in the popular vote. Uh, they only won they won just barely a majority with the seats. Do you so think what, that's uh, an attitude towards like snap elections? Is that what it is that people don't like? They don't like thinking that this is an unnecessary election. Well, certainly in this case it will be because it's unusual in that. It wasn't that there was a, a non-confidence vote in the House. Uh, in New Brunswick, for example, where they had an election now and they didn't get a majority, there, there were reasons for that because they couldn't have enough support. But uh, in this case, in B.C., all, all the other parties, the opposition parties, were, were supporting the NDP, uh, trying to, to uh, be as nonpartisan as possible and, and focus on the pandemic. Do you think that's something that holds Kara overall when it comes to other provinces as well? The difference between having people serve out their term and then calling an election versus what is perceived as calling an unnecessary election? Yes, because it's, it, it appears to voters as self-serving. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's, most people are busy uh, with uh, their day-to-day lives and having to consider politics. Uh, they, they, are, they don't want to be doing that. They want to look after their own affairs. So if you had been advising uh, the Horgan government on this, what would you have told them? I would have told them to wait. Um, uh, but I possibly, uh, to in defense of the NEP, uh, what might be happening is that they're afraid that the uh, COVID uh, cases increase, keep rising, and the, and the economy worsens again. Uh, and that's where there is a parallel with the 1990s, because um, apparently the, uh, the BC was experiencing uh, uh, difficulties there economically. Yeah, that was the, I remember the Asian flu, they called it, because it was the economic crisis that started over in Asia and hit BC right. pretty hard. Yes. And so that's, but the electorate didn't really seem to buy that argument when it came, like, you know, Glenn Clark was reelected, but that didn't really go down very well. No, well, our economy, of course, is, is uh, depends on, on what the global markets are doing. Uh, they're very resource-driven. It's hard to predict, though, Kara, this time around, isn't it, though? Because it seems like the pandemic has changed everything, including oh, the way yes. people think. Absolutely, yes, it's true. Uh, that's, uh, but um, there, there certainly will be segments of the population, for example, those who have voted green in the past, uh, won't be satisfied. We won't be pleased with what the NDP have done when they they had uh, made a signed on to an agreement with the Greens that they wouldn't be calling an election until 2021. Right, and then they break that agreement. So, when you see, do you think this is going to be an issue that sticks with the campaign, or do you think as the campaign goes on, it will kind of fall by the wayside? Hmm, that's hard to say. Uh, depends how the campaign goes. But uh, I think that the issue of of trust uh, is always important, and I think that. And um, the other parties, of course, uh, and the Liberals and Greens will will try will certainly make every effort to, be, uh, to remind voters of what happened. They certainly will. Kara, uh, thank you for your time. Great pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's Kara Camcastle, professor of political science at Simon Fraser University. We're talking historically about what it has taken for some premiers to get reelected. It doesn't always work out the way uh, they would like it to be, particularly when it comes to the history of NDP premiers in this province.